Hey everybody, and welcome to the Kodakery. This is Kodak's podcast where we interview creative people about their contributions to film, art, and science. I'm Megan. And I'm Josh. And today's episode is a special one. It takes a lot of people to make a motion picture, and it takes a lot of companies working together to create a movie. And in this case, we're going to discuss the journey that it took to make Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight. It's rare that a single artist can motivate an industry to rally behind a project or artistic vision. And in the case of Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight, that's exactly what happened. We're going to talk to some of the major players who made Hateful Eight possible today. Our first guest is Bob Harvey from Panavision. So let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with Bob. Today, Bob Harvey from Panavision is joining us to talk more about how the Hateful Eight came to light and using Ultra Panavision to uh, to capture the film. Bob, welcome. Well, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us. So first, Bob, why don't we start out with actually telling our audience a little bit about Panavision. I mean, it takes it takes a village, as they say, to make uh, make anything good. And uh, a movie definitely has a lot of a lot of parts and pieces and contributors. And Panavision is a storied company with a history deep into Hollywood. So could you tell us a little bit about, about Panavision? Sure. Uh, well, we were founded in 1954. Uh, that's a long time ago. And we started out... Uh, making uh, projection lenses for CinemaScope. Uh, CinemaScope was a Bosch and Loam process uh, licensed by 20th Century Fox. Uh, and we made, I think it was 10,000 sets of projection lenses and sold them. And, uh, you know, Gottschalk and his crew, Gottschalk was the founder, sat with this pile of money and said, what do we do now? And they decided to go into designing and manufacturing uh, anamorphic taking lenses. Uh, we designed four lenses versus the CinemaScope one lens. We designed it faster so you didn't need as much lighting. And it took off. And filmed in Panavision literally means filmed in anamorphic Panavision lenses. Uh, we moved into... Uh, cameras when we bought the MGM camera department. Uh, I believe that was probably around, oh, 1960 maybe. Before that, we were making large format lenses, uh, which ultimately became Ultra Panavision. They were used on Ben-Hur and and movies like that. Uh, When we went into the camera business, we decided to lease rather than sell because it, it was obvious if you sell it, you're out of business after that. Uh, and moving into the 70s, we designed the Panaflex, which was a very small uh, sync sound camera. Spielberg talked about it uh, as, as being a real breakthrough on Sugarland Express, for instance. He could fit it inside the car, and it was still sync sound. Uh, and, you know, moving into the 80s and 90s and the 2000s. In 2000, uh, we developed uh, some digital cameras uh, in conjunction with Sony, and today we're still developing new anamorphic uh, lenses and technology. That's it in a nutshell. Uh, I would guess most of your listeners are familiar with us, uh, as they are with Kodak, and... uh, 
next question. <laughs> All right. So, so in the in the in the case of the Hateful Eight, um, Ultra Panavision is what really captured the imagination of the filmmaker. So, can you can you tell us what Ultra Panavision is and uh, yeah, when sure. it was Ultra, used last? Well, Ultra Panavision is anamorphic 65 millimeter. Uh, it has an aspect ratio of 276 to 1 versus normal anamorphic 35, which is 235 and 240 to 1. Uh, so it's really wider, but it has all of the uh, attributes of anamorphic, shallower depth of field, uh, combined with 70 millimeter, uh, creates a real different feel than 35 millimeter anamorphic, and certainly 35 millimeter spherical. The the history of ultra panavision, the lenses were developed uh, as early as 1956. They were used on Ben Hur, which had an aspect ratio of 276 to 1 in the original format that was released on the road shows. Uh, mad, 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 mad world. What a lot of people don't realize on How the West Was Won, which was a Cinerama movie, they did the railroad sequence where the guy falls into the cactus in ultra panavision. So our lenses with that aspect ratio was used on several Cinerama movies. And the last time it was used was on a movie called Khartoum with Charlton Heston in 1966. It was really uh, used as uh, something to bring people back into the theaters. Uh, it was an ultra-widescreen experience, and of course, in those days, the moguls were worried about television taking over the world, and they were looking at all sorts of ways to bring people back into the theater. It was only used on 10 films, wow. uh, Hateful Eight being the 11th. Okay. So it really, it, it is really rare to see it used. I mean, not just for time, but just in general. It's never been been used that often. Well, it, it was difficult to, in, in those days, to project. Uh, it took special projection lenses. Uh, the normal, the spherical 70-millimeter, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, West Side Story, Exodus, were spherical, whereas, and the aspect ratio was completely different. It wasn't as wide. It, it was uh, a large format. Uh, I think it was, I'm not sure of this, 210 to 1, something like that. Uh, this was 276 to 1. Okay. Uh, which made a difference. So this is really the, the widest of the widescreen. Um, yes. It's as wide as Cinerama. Okay. Yes. And did they need special theaters, like curved screens or anything like that, or was it... No, um, on the, the Cinerama screen was a curved screen. Uh, you could show it on either. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it was... Obviously, road shows were... Uh, once they got off the road and they were uh, taken into uh, regular theaters, uh, they had to do some uh, some formatting to show it. But it all worked out. I mean, um, Mad, Mad, Mad World was shown in lots of theaters after the road show, for instance. And people people who knew what the road show version looked like certainly would have noticed the difference. But, 
it was a different experience. What can I tell you? Right. And right. watching it on television, it's a different experience. Yeah, and and so are there. Are there other than the the white like the obviously the widest of the widescreen and being able to capture um, like already in the hateful eight the trailers with the you know the snowy mountains and the beautiful uh, vistas and everything is there other uh, benefits to shooting in ultra Panavision and also does that bring other challenges? All I can say is I saw a screening of it at the DGA where it was projected in seventy millimeter anamorphic. When the uh, curtain opened, and it kept opening, and it kept opening, <laughs> there were murmurs in the audience. Now, remember, it was the DGA, and it was a special screening, and it was industry people. But uh, the words overture came up, and everybody, they had a bit of a laugh at that, because that's like the old days. Right. As the sequence opened, as it, as it dissolved into the movie, and you saw that range of mountains and the little stagecoach driving in the middle, there were gasps. I, I'm quite literally, people were taken back and started to applaud. That's awesome. The, now, last night I went to the uh, movies to see Bridge of Spies, and I saw a Hateful Eight trailer. I, it's just too bad that everybody can't experience what we did in that screening. And certainly a lot of people will be able to. The roadshow is going to last for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then I'm sure as the thing is released into regular theaters, the, the roadshow version will still be projected and shown. That's the way people want to see this movie. It's gorgeous. It was a tremendous undertaking on the part of Panavision and Photochem and Kodak and everybody else involved, but it, it's almost sacrilegious if you're in this industry and you don't make an effort to see it projected that way. Wow. So, so that's a that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is how how did uh, Quentin Tarantino and the filmmakers choose Ultra Panavision? Was that something they came to you and asked for, or was it something that you took to them? And how how did that come about? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, Quentin always knew uh, that he wanted to shoot it in 70 millimeter. And incidentally, we do a lot of 70 millimeter spherical. The Master was 70 millimeter, among other movies recently. Uh, so our 70 millimeter equipment, uh, lenses and cameras are going out. As I'm sure you know, being from Kodak, uh, 70 millimeter film is, is not dead. Any more than 35 millimeter film is dead. But Quentin wanted something special uh, and decided that's how he wanted to do it. He collaborated with Bob Richardson, who uh, he came here and had a conversation with us. And Ann Dan Suzaki, our vice president of optical engineering, and uh, Dan showed him the ultra Panavision lenses that we had in the box in the back. Uh, I think there was... Uh, again, I may be wrong, and don't write in because you know I'm I'm not the brightest peg around. I think there were 16 lenses and several zooms. Bob told Quentin about it. Quentin rented, from what I understand, uh, actually Quentin said it the night before he came here. He'd watched the Battle of the Bulge, 
which is a movie back from the 60s that was shot in Ultra Panavision, uh, he came in and said, this is how we're doing it. It, it was magnificent and looked at Dan Suzaki and said, any problem? And, of course, Dan's famous for saying, no, no problem. <laughs> and I kicked him. Uh, nobody saw that. <laughs> he then, you know, Dan then proceeded to tear the lenses apart and put them back together and, you know, literally unfroze some of them. Richardson walked by, and a little side note, we have a display case by our theater with our Academy Awards and our Emmys and some old museum-quality lenses, one of which was the, used for the Mirage sequence in Lawrence of Arabia uh, and has never been used since. But there were also some old prism lenses and, and, and autopanitars in the case. And Richardson noticed two of them that he liked the looks of and said, why don't you pull those out, too? I'd like to use them. These were lenses that, that truly were on the chariot race in Ben-Hur. That's what they had been used wow. for, among other things. I mean, obviously, those lenses were used on the Ultra Panavision shows. Dan pulled them and, as I say, tore them down, re put new screws in them. In some cases, we had to sleeve some lenses uh, and got them ready for use. And at the same time, we were rejuvenating our 65-millimeter Panaflex cameras along with our high-speed 65-millimeter cameras, which, uh, you know, they were used regularly. Uh, that, that wasn't as big a deal as obviously getting the lenses back together. And we were given a time frame, and we were ready. Uh, Richardson took them to Telluride, tested them with Quentin, brought the tests back. We looked at the tests on our screen, then we went over to, what was it, the Pantages? We went to the Pantages and looked at it on their screen, on their 70-millimeter projectors, and then to the DGA, and it looked great. It was just breathtaking, and we knew we could do it, and that's how they decided to use it. That's fantastic. It must have been exciting. Yeah. It I, was. Yeah. It really was. I'm, I'm a huge Western fan and a Tarantino fan, so the more you're talking about this, like I feel like I should just go get in line right now to see this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> so cool to hear how you're able to restore the lenses, but then also just the, the little bits of like that actual lenses from Ben-Hur were used in this movie and that tied to cinema history. It's it's uh, it's really exciting. And uh you also created some additional magazines, correct? So that Quentin could do longer takes and and uh, shoot, you know, more film at a time. Well, you see, I, I'm going to jump up and down and beat my chest on that one, along with Jim Rodebush. I I'm a big fan of Quentin's, and I can remember the the one thing that stuck out in my mind was the opening sequence in Inglorious Bastards, where the camera went from. Uh, Christopher Waltz speaking with the three people down to the floor, then back up to him, then down to the floor, very patiently taking lots of time to set up what was going on. Of course, there were people hidden below the, the floorboard. And I mentioned to Quentin, you like long takes. You know, uh, maybe we can do something about that. Uh, John Rodriguez, who was design engineering, cringed when I said it. <laughs> but 
I looked at John. I said, what about a 2,000-foot mag for an extra long take? Well, you know, building a mag, right away, Quentin said, yeah, I need that. <laughs> building a mag is a, is a real engineering feat in itself. It's, you know, uh, it, it, you talk about displacement, you talk about uh, torque and things like that so that the film doesn't rip. And it's got to it's got to let enough film out so that at 24 frames a second there aren't any problems. Add to that the added weight of 65 millimeter film that you're familiar with, and it's a real undertaking. The guys did it. They they built three 2,000 foot mags. They were ready in time, and they were used in 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 scenes in the movie. And you know, I might add that's what we do. It, it it's about making movies right. and this was movie making and we were thrilled to be part of this and and able to do it able to come through can you explain to maybe somebody who doesn't know what a magazine is a little bit more about it a magazine is what sits on the camera whether it's the rear of the camera or the top of the camera and feeds that's where the the load of film goes in it goes into it and then it's fed into the camera gate movement. You've heard them yell, check the gate. Goes through that, wiggles around through the movement, and then comes out on another end into the take-up reel inside the magazine. And it does that 24 times a second, unless you're shooting high speed, then it's obviously more. And it's very precision I mean, it's got to be, right. otherwise you can't shoot. Right, uh, right. That, you know, that's what Kodak is, Kodak's known for making the film that goes through that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned just a few minutes ago, and, and we, we wholeheartedly agree that film is not dead, and uh, film has actually had a really, really good year this year. I mean, some of the biggest movies of the year, Star Wars, The Hateful Eight, Jurassic World, all shot on film. Have you seen just in terms of the ultra panavision i mean do you think this is something that another filmmaker is going to pick up once they see this movie and and has there been i know you probably can't talk about if there is but has there been interest in a general sense from filmmakers about it the lenses went out on another movie about six days after hateful eight wrapped wow that's great so um and we've got after the screening I received six or seven calls about the, in quote, Richardson lenses. However, they are working on a movie right now. Cool. Uh, I'll use a dirty word. It happens to be on a digital movie, but it's still, it's these lenses that were used. And we were told by uh, one of the producers they had never seen a better looking digital picture than what they saw with these lenses. That's great, yeah. And does it change the capture at all, putting the lenses on a digital camera versus film? I mean, I know film and digital have inherently different qualities in terms of the image and everything, but just do you have to do anything different to the lenses? Does it change the way that the, the capture happens, or is it just they're, they're, you plug and play and, and you're capturing in that same wide screen that you would on film? Well, you're capturing in the same wide screen if you're using a 65 millimeter chip, I mean, obviously it, it depends on, on on the chip. Right. This happens. I, it's the Arri 65 that uh, they released. That, by the way, all of the movies that uh, almost all of the movies that 
the Area 65 was involved with used our lenses, uh, whether it be the Primo 70s or the Ultra Panavision or the spherical Panavision 70s. The, the lenses are the key. Right. And as you probably know, older lenses are far more popular than brand new ones that, you know, they'll burn your eyes if you look at them too closely. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why you and I can both agree film is not even close to being dead. The tent poles this year were shot on film. The Bond movie was on film anamorphic. Star Wars was film anamorphic. Mission Impossible was film anamorphic. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. It's very much like vinyl records coming back yeah. because the quality is there and the kids want to use film. Kids coming out of film school talk about using film today. That's great. Right, yeah. We're, we're very happy to hear that. So, so um, Bob, this has been great. I mean, we, uh, we really appreciate you joining us for this segment on the show, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future, hopefully, about another project. Well, you guys keep up the good work, will you? Because, you know, our film cameras are nothing without you. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Right, bye. Our second guest on the Kodakery is Michael Broderson from Photochem. So let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with Michael. All right. Joining us now in the, in the Kodakery is Michael Broderson from Photochem. And Photochem is another critical element in the making of the Hateful Eight. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. So, so Mike, could you tell us a little bit about Photochem, what Photochem is, a little of the history of the company? Sure, sure. Photochem is um, basically a full-service post-production company. So we do everything from the, the uh, from the, the developing and processing of the original image, whether it's film or digital, to the to the end result, which is what you see on the screen um, in, a, in a, either a digital projection or a film projection, and sort of everything in between um, through the editorial color and audio processes that it requires um, after shooting and editing, essentially. So a director or a producer works with Photochem on a project and sees it sees it all the way through, basically? Yeah, basically we work with, um, I mean, a variety of, of folks, I think, directors, producers, cinematographers, and uh, we we provide the the ancillary services, essentially, to help people get their, their creativity, their creative vision complete. And, you know, we can start as early as, say, the editorial process or the production process where we set up office space and editorial environments for the editors to work in um, and through the, the creative aspects of post-production, which would be audio mixing and you know, great color grading the film and uh, you know, the visual effects and the compositing and, and getting everything looking, you know, the takes, uh, you know, sometimes a year or more to, to do that part of the process after shooting. So we are kind of the, the, the guiding force or the, the, the resource pool, I guess, for these uh, for our creative clients. And, and you guys are involved in all kinds of projects, right? Could you could you mention maybe a couple of the bigger things that you've been involved with uh, over the last year, just to give people a Sure, flavor? sure. I mean, well, being, you know, one of the last uh, or, or, or at least even the largest, you know, film lab and um, a full-service film lab, we're doing all these different uh, large format shows, so we get um, to work with some pretty great people. Like uh, we did, we worked on Interstellar with Christopher Nolan, and um, Inherent Vice with Paul Thomas Anderson. So these guys, you know, really push the the boundaries of of how to use film in large formats, 
And um, we also work on some restoration projects of some, of some pretty well-known films. So we'll take and restore library work like The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady and It's a Bad Man, Mad World. And we'll restore those to new HD or 4K versions for re-release. Um, some some current technology and the way people are mixing these mediums, mixing film and mixing digital. We did a bunch of work on the Steve Jobs, the recent film with Danny Boyle, who shot 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, and Alexa for each decade of the show of each decade right. of Steve Jobs' life. So basically, we take these different formats and we help him have a workflow for the front end during production that um, you know makes editorial and that in that uh, production stage seamless. Um, we finished San Andreas, which is a you know pretty big all digital all digitally shot show, and then we work on some TV shows like Homeland, The Nick, Better Call Saul. And um, one of the interesting things between television and feature work is that because the camera technologies, which used to be very different from TV and, and feature work, are now everybody's using the same camera technology. So the workflows are becoming very similar, um, as is the content between feature work and television work. So that's some of the stuff we've been, we've been doing. Nice, nice. I, I love many of those things that you just listed. Me too. Um, <laughs> me too. The uh, so can can you give our listeners a little bit? You mentioned you know you're one of the last kind of full service labs. The photochemical process. I mean that used to be how all films were made, but now it's it's a it's a you know a lot of films are projected digitally, shot digitally, and it's really there's a lot more there's a lot of choice for the artist. And the photochemical process is something that I think people don't really know about that much anymore. So could you talk a little bit about what that means and, and how it impacts how a film is made? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think the photochemical process, you know, much of actually any creative process, whether it's photochemical or digital, we'll start with the cinematographer and their choice of, in the case of film, their choice of film stock and film formats, whether it's 16, 35, 65 millimeter uh, and the lens choices, and that's really where the look and the and the thought process of the look begins. From the lab standpoint, you know there um, used to be a lot of stuff that you could bake in, but you know basically the options are just normal developing uh, from the negative. You can push or overdevelop the negative, and that can be done to compensate for un, un, underexposure or intentional underexposure. You can pull it, uh, which is basically underdeveloping it for overexposed or intentionally overexposed neg. We used to do things like skip bleach, you know, a lot where, you know, and you can do that on the negative or you could do that on the inner negative or any step of that chemical process. And that would bake in this skip bleached look um, where you reduce saturation and you increase contrast. Most of that kind of thing is done in, in digital, in the digital intermediate now. Basic way to think of what can be created in a lab, you know, you have the original negative from the camera from that original negative, uh, through a process uh, on a on a printer, you can make an inner positive, which is a positive image um, on sort of negative-like stock, and that becomes a protection element. And from that inner positive, you can make an inner negative, uh, or it's commonly called a dupe neg. And that dupe negative is sort of or is close to identical as the original negative, and you can use that for making prints. And that really is just to protect that original element. Um, if you're making thousands of prints or hundreds of prints, you don't want to necessarily put your original camera negative up on that um, you know, process of printing over and over again. You could damage it. So you make a dupe neg. And uh, in terms of prints, there's three general types of prints that you can make. A check print, which is just to make sure everything's good. 
an answer print, which has gone through some type of color timing process, and then eventually the release print, which is after all the final choices are made, you, you make a release print. What, what happened after digital intermediate became the common standard is that you would take a bunch of digital files, 2K files or 4K files, and you would do a film out. So we film out to a, an intermediate stock a brand new negative and use that negative in place of you know what used to be original or dupe or, or a cut negative. So um, that's the basics of the, the chemical process and what, what the lab can do. So basically, a director comes to you with a final product, looks at this um, check print, and then they say, based on what they see there, then they make a decision on how to process it. Yeah, yeah. I, it, when there's a you know a, sort of an initial color decision that's made by by the folks in the lab and say, hey, you know, this based on a gray chart, based on color charts, this is where we think they want it, and um, and then you know you can go from there to fine tune, and you know when cut negative, when when they would actually cut negative, which some of our uh, film clients still do, it still happens, but it used to be the standard. They would go each cut and make very specific light changes uh, at each cut, and then that would be you know, the, the process of making a, a final print. That doesn't happen too much anymore. It's, it's more relegated to the digital intermediate process, but um, yeah, those, those changes are made based on that initial print, essentially. Mike, just to be sure that our audience is, is clear on all the terms you're using, could you explain what a digital intermediate is? Sure, sure. Digital intermediate is basically, I guess the, the best way to think of it is if you, if, if you look back at the way films used to be made as a standard, you would shoot a bunch of rolls of film, um, you would decide which shots that you liked, you'd go back to that original film and you'd cut out the pieces that you wanted to keep and you'd splice those back together into your final roll. You would edit on a flatbed with a with a with a check print, and you would go back to that film and cut the film. When scanning um, negative became good enough, uh, and it really started with visual effects, where you would scan a shot and do computer graphics on it, computer effects, and you would refilm that out to a new piece of negative, and then use that in place. It became a mixture of cutting original negative and cutting in those visual effects back to that negative. When scanning got faster and more common, people just started scanning everything. So you would scan every shot. Instead of cutting that shot out of the negative, you'd locate that shot, scan it in at high resolution, and basically you'd have everything in a high-resolution digital format. And then you would cut, cut back together that stuff in a digital intermediate system. Okay. And then you would do the entire thing digitally on a projector, on a digital projector, and then film it all out at the end. And that process was called digital intermediates. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So in the case of the Hateful Eight, there was obviously um, the whole idea of the roadshow, capturing the movie in ultra Panavision, 70 millimeter, and then projecting it in 70 millimeter across the country. Can you talk a little bit about Photochem's role in that and the challenges that, that uh, challenges and excitement of kind of reviving that technology? Sure. Well, I, I think I can kind of divide it up into two parts. And really, the beginning was just the production portion of it, where, where we, you know, we've worked in this format before um, in a couple ways. We've, we did some remastering for a movie called Khartoum, and Mad, Mad, Mad World, and these were both shot in that Ultra Panavision format, so we had some experience, but we'd never really done it from scratch. So some of the things, you know, and they were really pushing the format. Um, 
in terms of, you know, Quentin and, and Bob, they were really pushing the format in terms of what they wanted it to do. So they had some uh, created some larger magazines, and, you know, Panavision did quite a bit of work with this to create larger roles. So we were, you know, we had to, to figure out how to make sure large 70-millimeter rolls worked on our equipment. So our our transfer machine that did the, the dailies transfers, we had to make sure that these big giant rolls were okay on these machines, and some types uh, of modifications were made to some of our lab machines and our, our uh, telecine machines. We had to make sure that the 65 millimeter negative and editorial dailies process, which was done on a machine called a Millennium, that uh, the color that resulted from this Avid media that we created, this editorial digital editorial media we created, looked the same as a film print. So we had to to uh, use co- our color science and make sure that the digital image that the editors were going to be looking at throughout this editorial process were the same as what they'd get on the end result in in a film print, because that is the ultimate deliverable. is a is a film print is is what um, is what they considered their their gold standard for delivery. There was a lot of color science involved. We printed dailies, and on top of that, we, you know, pr- so printing dailies. I can give you a little bit of background on that printing every roll of film to see in a projected way that is not a standard anymore that used to be the standard when that was the best way to see things but now most most people are transferring the film and looking at it digitally so we printed everything in this case for dailies they cut those prints and then we had to make sure it would sync back up to audio so we had to do a lot of work with tools um there was a tool that we resurrected out of the academy warehouse, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences warehouse, had a flatbed called a Prevost. And this is something that had been used for years, and we took that out of the the warehouse and resurrected it mechanically, and we combined it with some audio technology called a DV40 to help their editors sync to these prints. So they took cut prints, they took the audio, and they built basically synced rolls to send to Telluride, and then ultimately when they were here in L.A., sent them to L.A. so that the the production crew could watch synced print dailies. Wow. Um, And that was very important to them. So there was a lot of challenges around that. Obviously, the lenses and the maintenance of the 70-millimeter projectors was, was, uh, you know, something that was, when you're dealing with that much footage, you have to keep these, these systems up. And basically just the general amount of footage and the prints needed in, the, in this challenging time frame was, was some of that. So in ter- and then the other half, I think, would be the what you asked about was the projection and the, the distribution of this kind of roadshow, right? And really that's a, a, a really important collaboration between Kodak, um, Panavision, Boston Light and Sound, Photochem. We're all providing really important components to this process that, you know, it couldn't be done without any of these, these key players. And I think from our standpoint, we're, you know, making the prints and making those prints as good as possible according to how the, the creative people on the show wanted them. Bob Richardson and Quentin Tarantino wanted, you know, we created this look and this, this thing that they were happy with. And these prints have to be very consistent. So all of the prints that are going to all the theaters, we made the prints. Um, and then Boston Light and Sound is preparing all the projection and theaters and sound for all the theaters. Wow. And uh, Panavision is providing those lenses and their expertise. So it really is um, a collaboration between all these companies. 
Right, right. And to see that uh, the industry come together like this and rally around to try to bring this uh, artistic vision to moviegoers has been really exciting for us. And then just to hear you talk about how you're like literally resurrecting things from a museum. I mean, that must have been a great opportunity to almost rediscover kind of some of, uh, you know, the history of Hollywood and how things used to be done and all that kind of stuff like it. That, that's really cool. It's pretty neat, yeah, and it really helps you get in the spirit of the filmmaker's vision of what they're trying to accomplish. And you know, there's, you know, we could talk for hours about you know even just that stuff. So it's pretty right. interesting, right? And and so so in the process of the hateful eight, you mentioned you know we we've talked with Bob um, at Panavision, and we, I mean we how early on in the process did they come to you and bring you guys in to talk about you know the vision for this, um, you know, the movie and then also the projection? Very early. I mean, I think. Before they even knew they could do what they wanted to do, they had to find a a film lab and post house that could even do that work. Um, so they came to us and said, "Hey, can you guys work in this format and you know at the scale?" And uh, you know it was one of the very first things uh, after I think they found the lenses and got this great idea. The first thing they said is, "Hey, can we even do this?" You know, in much the way, I'm sure they came to Kodak and said, "Hey, do we even have this film available?" Right. right. So right. Yep. it's uh, it was very early in the process. That's fantastic. It's been uh, we we think you know we're excited about uh, the year in film. There's been a lot of big big movies shot on film. From from your point of view, I mean, it, have you guys seen a lot of interest in film this year? How how uh, you know coming through the lab? Yes, I think a lot of people are. You know, there's a lot of people that really like not only the look but the process of shooting in film. And, you know, that really is a very subtle and layered conversation that, um, you know, you could talk about for a long time, and there's a lot of angles to it. But I think, in general, people really appreciate the the history and the legacy and the te- te- technology of film and the artistry of it. And I'm sure when you, when you spoke with, with Tacita and some of the other previous discussions you've had, people consider it an art form and a medium. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's how they like to work and, and think of it. So there's still a tremendous amount of interest and in, in love for that for that medium. Yeah, yeah. And and that is definitely, we've heard that now in a couple of different episodes where people talk about it as a medium and as their chosen medium. There there definitely is a lot of passion for it, which we're very thankful for. And you just gave me an idea for another episode as you were, <laughs> you were talking through there. So that's, uh, so so we, we really appreciate you joining us and we're really excited to uh, to see The Hateful Eight and we, for your contribution to it and, and talking about this. And I would love to, like I said, maybe uh, connect again for another episode in the future. Sure, no problem. Thanks for uh, including us. Thank right. you so much. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye. satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention.